Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Having a good week? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Pretty good week. Yeah. Ready it was our back. anniversary. So my wife and I got away overnight. We went up to solitude for our anniversary and had a nice day up there. And then last night, um, our team won the softball championship. So hey, it's a wow. great week. Life is good. God is good. Yeah. <laughs> In spite of all that. Yeah. Ready to get back into the uh, school year time, the flow of the school year calendar. Well, yeah, uh, we're retired. We're kind of semi-retired and, or, you know, so it doesn't affect us the same way. Affects churches though, doesn't it? I mean, isn't like yeah. the mindset of people so affected yeah. by uh, whether school's in session or not. I, I feel like summer is just open season, free game. Every, they Anything. might be there. They might not be. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we we'll expect to see some of that. Mm-hmm. And we have some things that we do to try to um, get families kind of back in their habits and, and to get help parents to um, disciple their kids and stuff like that, that starts off the school year. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I really enjoyed the book, as you know, uh, the endorsement I wrote for it. Um, yeah. Thank you. And, but that, that wasn't the first book that you and Corey Miller had written together. I don't think. Uh, yeah, it is. Had... It's we've both written, uh, separate separately, but this is the first one we've done together. And you guys were more like editors for this one, right? Yeah, we each wrote a chapter mm-hmm. and we um, both kind of helped everybody else. Like I did a lot of coaching for the other authors and, you know, deadlines and like change this and, you know, stuff like that. So, and when push came to shove, um, I, I ended up at the end of the day um, doing some pretty major editing in some spots where it was like, okay, I'm not going to send this back to you anymore i'm just gonna fix it hmm. so yeah yep that has to happen sometimes yeah uh, yep. kick the ball down the road um the uh other books you've written have pretty much all been on the topic of mormonism haven't they yeah mm-hmm. yeah the first one was called um understanding the book of mormon it's sort of a audience sunday school audience introduction mm-hmm. to the book of mormon and the second one is called understanding your mormon neighbor which is which delves into um, the culture of Mormonism and what's the daily life experience. If if you have LDS people in your life, it's it's not driven by theology, although there's a chapter on worldview, but it's driven by what's their life experience like. Hmm. And so then how do I talk to them understanding about faith, about Christ 
understanding that this is the kind of the way their life works. And these are the things that they, this is, it's an ethnography basically yeah. of Mormonism. And what gives you the authority to write from that perspective? Have, were you LDS? <laughs> I was LDS. I was born and raised LDS. Yeah. Here um, in Utah? No, well, I was born in Utah, but I was raised throughout the West, uh, mostly from third grade on in Southern California. Okay. So Southern California is kind of home. And that's where I experienced you know, most of my Mormonism was in that environment where Mormonism is a minority, not rather than a majority. Hmm. And so if you're going to be LDS, you're going to probably be uh, do it because you want to do it, not because everybody in your family or your neighbors are doing it. Um, so I left I left the LDS church um, after high school, my first year of college, and then hmm. came to faith in Jesus about two and a half years later. What was it that made you leave? Yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> I'm one of 10 kids. And so I have s several older brothers and they had all gone on missions and they had gone places that weren't attractive, so to speak. They're not where you'd go on vacation, <laughs> um, rural Mexico and, you know, the challenging places. And so that got me thinking, you know, counting the cost. I was going like, do I own this enough to pay that price? You know, they had made a lot of sacrifice. And do I own this in this this whole thing? Do I believe this thing enough to go and, you know, make that sacrifice like they have done? And then um, in that context, was thinking about that stuff. Um, I started dating a girl who is not a Mormon. Um, she was she was a Christian, unschooled. Her family was not believers. She was very unschooled, but had come to faith in mm -hmm in high school, you know, she's not a, not a very good Christian. You could say in some right. ways, cause she wouldn't have been dating me. Right. Uh -huh. But she wasn't, ed she wasn't schooled. Like I said, she later on, you know, um, went to Christian college and really grew and so forth. But, um, she at least knew that something wasn't, you know, right. And I had her seeing the Mormon missionaries and she had some answers for them. And I didn't have any answers uh, for the things that she's having me read. She had me start reading some, quote, anti-Mormon literature. Um, but back in the day, that was that was in the 70s. And so there was no internet. Mm. And it was all just a matter of what literature you could find. And some of it was really poor. And she, But she found that the source uh, that made a difference was the stuff that was written by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Mm. Uh, the a big fat book called the um shoot I can't even remember the name of it now um shadow mormonism shadow or reality oh right yeah and um so and that started conversations it started deconstructing my mormon type faith and um after a year of that it was the hardest year of my life um i sat down told my dad i can't you know continue to participate in the lds church it, it was an intellectual conversion but I didn't have anything to replace it with. Mm -hmm. And so the next year and a half or so, God's working in my life, just deconstructing everything about my sense of what's real and my, my sense of self. And it came to a point where a friend of mine invited me to, to her church. It was a Bible teaching church in Orange County, California. And the pastor was speaking on the parable of the four soils. And, um, you know, and he starts describing the, the, the fruitful, you know, the fertile soil that receives this the seed of the word and begins to uh, produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. 
that was a moment where I go, oh man, I need that. That doesn't that doesn't sound my, like my life. And at a at a deep level, I surrendered to Jesus that night. Wow. Said, you know, I need you to come do that in me. That was the turning point for me. I'm assuming you lost whenever you left Mormonism, you lost your community or probably your sense of identity too, being in a family yeah. that large that was so LDS in a relatively non LDS place uh, after going through high school as a Mormon. Um, I mean, socially, I assume you just lost everything at that point, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there was a lot of that. It was a, a transition time anyway in life because I was leaving high school and heading for college. And so that helped mm. a lot um, because the social networks were weakened by that transition. And, but still, yeah, there's still a lot of friends, a lot of family friends that, you know, um, yeah, they had to, I, this is a good church though. I started attending that church and they had a great uh, young adult group and, and some people who took me into their wing and uh, really had a very, very positive a time just kind of rebuilding a lot of that, that um, community and, and rebuilding my worldview in a lot of ways. What did it do to your relationship with your parents? Well, they were, um, they didn't really understand what was going on. So um, they thought, okay, he's going through a, a, you know, kind of a rebellious time or whatever, but he'll be back. It, they just thought it was a long circuitous path. And at some point I'll be back. And when I came to faith, you know, I'd been going to this other church that my girlfriend was at and I, and I, without, without knowing Jesus that, you know, things, I don't know whether the gospel was preached there or not. Might not have been, or it might have been that I just did not have ears to hear. Sure, yeah. You know, um, so when I came to faith at this other church, um, I, I stopped, started attending there. I was only attending that other girlfriend's church, very sporadically anyway. My parents didn't understand what was going on in my life. They just thought, oh, you changed churches. Mm -hmm. They had no concept of, oh, you, you know, have had this eternal transaction with the living God and received his grace. So they were patient with it. And um, actually they, uh, you know, they, they kind of gave me some slack and um, didn't push too hard when I didn't participate. It wasn't until a few years later when I was complete completing college that, um, and I, and I felt like God was leading me to go to theological seminary that that's when they go, Oh, maybe he's not coming back. And that's when we started some real more in-depth conversations about, you know, matters of faith and comparative um, truth claims and so forth. And how did that go? Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, what, I was not living at home at the time. I was living in San Diego. I went to uh, University of California there. And um, so we would, you know, exchange. I would come home once in a while. We would exchange a lot of it with letters back in the day you'd write yeah wow send those over on a dinosaur huh exactly and um, i gave my dad a book to read and and he read it and really didn't get it um and he wrote some things in it in the back of it and he he had some minor general authorities you know reaching out to me and kind of urging me to come back to my testimony and so neither side it was it was not fruitful and it was it was pretty mm -hmm. um challenging conversation to see like oh this is really going anywhere 
Yeah, sadly, pretty standard too. Uh, yeah, pretty standard for sure. Did, did you have the sense at that age that you were raised in a cult and you've left a cult, or was it more like, yeah, I, I was my my parents are just a little off base? I mean, how how big of a transition was it in your mind at that time? Yeah, it was pretty huge. It was pretty huge because you know I I don't know if when I started thinking about it in terms of a cult, but it was certainly clearly that this is a, a way of life that this doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. So first of all, you know, my, de- my deconstruction, it doesn't add up. It's claims don't add up historically. And there's been a lot of things swept under the rug and a lot of things that have been, been lied about and, and so forth. But then as I, when I came to faith, you know, and I started to understand, I had eyes to see the Bible and I started, Oh, this doesn't add up either. It doesn't add up um, scripturally. Um, and there's this whole different, reconstructing this worldview. And again, I was blessed to be involved in some, some good discipling and some good, some good Bible study groups and things like that. And it's sort of like, Oh, this is, you know, this is, I would, I wouldn't have maybe called it a cult. I wouldn't have understood at that point in time, the sociological aspects uh, Mm -hmm. that define cults in terms of mind control and stuff like that. But I would have definitely said, this isn't true. And this whole thing is, um, you know, uh, uh, built on cards, house of cards, and definitely seeking to know what God had to say about things. And then your parents and your nine siblings got to see you grow up to be an anti-Mormon, a professional anti-Mormon, <laughs> huh? Yeah. So I, you know, yeah. So here's the thing. So when I wrote the first book, um, the publisher, Zondervan is the publisher they they were looking for a certain kind of person to write a certain kind of book. And um, so Salt Lake Seminary, they came to the seminary and they asked, Oh, who do you who do you know? And 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 um they knew me. And so so they they pursued me. So so I wrote this book on the Book of Mormon. I had to figure out how do I talk about that in my family? How do I out myself mm-hmm. in my family? Because I don't want them to be searching Book of Mormon on Amazon and they come up with, oh, what is yeah. this anti-Mormon thing, you know? So, um, so I actually t- took the bull by the horns. I said, I said to my family, we had a family reunion. I said, Hey, I've been asked to write this book. Um, it's about the book of Mormon. And so I'd like to hear from you guys, what your experience is with the book of Mormon, um, how you use it, how you think about it. So I'm trying to go for the, not just the academic side, but the personal side. And, um, that was that was great. That's how that got it on the table. People were, were they thought there was like they'd have a chance to, um, but you know, so I used a lot of their quotes and things like that. But it didn't turn out the way they wanted the book to turn out. And mm-hmm. so, when the second book came out, I tried the same approach, and it was crickets. Oh yeah, it was completely like, oh, we're not going there again because we've heard didn't... this before. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, they uh, it's not so much antagonism from my family it's um now there's been a little bit of antagonism and a little bit of uh of pushback on some of it but um it's more like just being excluded so i could go to a family reunion they say oh saturday morning we're all going to the temple well guess who's not going to the temple right yeah you know um so it's just they're myopic about it and and just kind of that's just they have this lens of looking at reality and but i'm i'm guarded like they don't really know I have this new book, and um, 
you know, I kind of, when I post on social media, I typically tend to screen mm-hmm. the family because um, I don't want to create, um, I don't want to, I don't want to create tension in those relationships. We have some good conversations with my brothers and, and um, so I don't want to be seen as an anti-Mormon. I'm sure they will. Um, I don't want to be seen as kicking, you know, the beehive over. Um, so I want to be able to have real meaningful and and thoughtful conversations from time to time. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, come back to the book in just a moment. I, I just, I'm interested in uh, your biography a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I basically what you're saying here is there's no golden, golden bullet, silver bullet, whatever kind of bullet you want to describe it as to reach people who are entrenched in Mormonism. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I, there's no golden bullet. Um, there's no simple solution, but I do feel like there's some underlying principles. I, I do feel like um, it requires some commitment to long-term relationship. I think that's that's ideal. It doesn't mean I can't talk to an LDS person, you know, on the on the sidewalk in front of the temple or whatever, wherever God gives me an opportunity to do that. And be I can even be. Um, you know, take the initiative to go be there and do that conversation. But, but really what happens, I think what happens so often is that when the wheels start to come off in a person's life and life isn't working out, oh, this isn't what it was promised it would be. Or I was, you know, these are things that I'm struggling with this perfection, this weight of perfectionism, this worthiness. And, and so, oh, you know, my kids didn't, you know, aren't glowing and beautiful uh, moral examples and so, so whatever happens or I lost my job and I was fired by you know co-religionists mm-hmm. who you know have are playing politics or whatever it is when the wheels come off then they can't talk about their angst or their ne- negative things they can't talk about that within the LDS circles because you have to maintain an image of worthiness and if you start to question like things aren't going so well then you you get knocked down a peg in their social standing. So I feel like um, there's a, if there's a trusted Christian in their life, someone that, you know, has been there with them and for them and honest and open and just modeling, not perfection, but modeling redemption and grace. Then when the wheels come off, there's an opportunity for uh, them to find someone who is not frightening to talk about or not threatening to talk, to talk to. Yeah. And I've seen I, that happen many times over the years. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say is, uh, you know, we're down here in Payson and I've seen that um, in the nearly 10 years we've been out here, that same sort of thing yeah. um, where you, you just can't force it. Uh, you know, this is uh, obviously when we're dealing with souls, this is God's business here. Um, yeah. He's, he's the one who has to touch people's hearts and, uh, what we can do is just be ready and, you know, like you said, have that, that ongoing example um, and just being good neighbors, being friends who are ready yeah, to to yeah, listen. Sure. I, I assume most of your ministry, if not all of your ministry in your adult life has been in Utah among Latter-day yeah. Saint people. Yeah. So I went to seminary out of college. I went to seminary in the Chicago area at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And um, I thought my my wife, we had been just recently married, 
we thought God was leading us overseas hmm. in the cross-cultural setting. And we're going to go plant a church somewhere in Indonesia or who knows what. But as we came to toward the end of the of our term as a student, then we thought, oh, well, we'd gone overseas. We'd done a mis- summer mission project in um, in Malaysia and Singapore. And we think, oh, God's going to speak. And we just didn't get a sense of like, oh, you know, the, the heavens parted. And we knew that, oh, God's calling us to go do this. Um, so we just really started fasting and praying that last year of seminary, saying, God, what are you going to do? You know, where, where are you going to lead us? Because we're going to graduate and we're going to make a choice and we just want to hear from you. And when we really started earnestly fasting and praying for God's direction, what happened was um, all these doors started opening up with respect to the Mormon world. Hmm. Which so, is cross-cultural. Yeah. Which is totally, which is like bringing that, bringing that missiological training to Utah and saying, yeah, there is, and that's one of the things that I've majored on in my, in my ministry career here is trying to think about interacting with Mormons, not just only from a intellectual or apologetics perspective, although that's important, but also from a missiological perspective, a cross-cultural contextual perspective. And learn that, you know, kind of bring that train, learn how that works in practice over the first decade or so. And, um, you know, we, uh, that's just how, how God has, has led us to be here. So this is really the, the first formal ministry gig, you know, mm-hmm. vocationally, uh, was definitely in Utah and that was 1983 and, uh, been here, um, ever since. Wow. 83 before I was even a thought in my parents' minds. <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah. So let's, you're talking about interacting with Mormons. Um, the book title, the the book that just came out, my first ever book endorsement, by the way. Uh, <laughs> All right. Thanks. Responding to the Mormon missionary message. Um, a unique book. I, I've got several books on Mormonism um, as Many of my listeners probably do too. And this one is pretty unique. Uh, it's a unique approach. Um, the way that it's laid out where you have, well, first of all, all the authors are former Mormon, uh, former Mormons, right? Right. Uh, two. There's two of us out, out of the eight authors, two of us never served a, a Mormon mission. Okay. I never served a Mormon mission. But the but six did. And six did. And we actually Corey Miller and I, the co are co were listed as authors, but the co, you know, uh editors or whatever. We it's Corey's idea. Corey Miller, by the way, is um the president of a campus apologetics ministry called Ratio Christi. And they have, yeah. you know, eight hundred campus groups across America, whatever. But he grew up LDS. He grew up in Salt Lake City, and um, and so he he thought he thought of this book, and he asked me to help him with it. And so, but the but the we recruited six former LDS missionaries to actually interact with the the LDS, the Mormon missionary content. And so they've because they lived it, they taught it, you know, they experienced it. And now they are followers of Jesus since mm-hmm. then. So that that's really an interesting, unique approach we fought. Yeah, one of them is uh, Matthew Wilder, uh, brother to Micah Wilder uh, of the group Adams Road. Um, uh, Matthew Eklund and Paul Nurnberg of the Outer Brightness podcast and Michael Flournoy, who was also a part of that for a while. 
a lot, a lot of good guys were part of yeah. this project. Um, yeah. Really interesting stories that were shared. Uh, that to me, that was the strength of the book was having guys who have mm-hmm. lived lived in that world, and uh, made for a really interesting read. Because one of the things I always try to do when I'm talking to a former Latter Day Saint is trying to tap into that mind that they had when they were in it. Yeah. Uh, because when they're in it and you're talking to them, they're not giving you everything. They're not, they're not being honest a lot of times, you know, because <laughs> uh, so much of any religion uh, works. Righteousness religion is just grin and bear it kind of stuff. Yep. And so when you have yep. the opportunity to kind of do a debrief or whatever, and just go back and think through what was that actually like, what were you actually thinking? I always find that to be really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is, a, that's one of the strengths. I think what I love about this book, so I can say this because I didn't write all these chapters. It's not like my book. It is my book in a way, but um, these guys contributed and I just steered them a little bit. But what I love about the strength of this is like it's a one-two punch because it's got a great head and heart. The head and heart come together. The apologetics is good. The theology is good. These guys are interacting with the Mormon uh, missionary message from a biblical perspective and bringing up some great points. It's very Jesus centered. And, and so the head part is really good, but the heart part is really strong too. telling the stories. And it's so powerful to hear these stories of these guys, how each one of them tells like how they were impacted by some conversation at some point with a Christian when they're on a mission. And you know what? That's hopeful. When I'm meeting with the more missionaries, that's super hopeful. And then each one of them tells their story of what it was like growing up LDS and what it was like uh, becoming preparing for a mission, what it was like on their mission, and then how they came to faith in Jesus post-mission. And so the combination of those two, um, the, the cognitive and the affective is, I think, makes this a, a great read. It's a great read for anybody. If you're a apologetics wonk, you're going to appreciate it. But if you're not, and you just love to hear what Jesus is doing and how the Holy Spirit's at work in people's lives, you're gonna you're gonna love it too. So that that to me is the most impressive thing. Yeah, what you just mentioned about uh, how almost all of them, maybe all of them, talked about how they were impacted by Christians in their lives before mm-hmm. they converted. I found that super encouraging too, because yeah. uh, sometimes they don't remember the name of the person. They just remember off. There was a conversation that I had and I remember this thought was planted in my head, (laughs) or maybe they remember, like, I remember one of them like could describe the living room that they were sitting in and everything, Mm -hmm. but zero chance of being able to contact that person again, not remembering, you know, who or where they are, how to get to them or whatever. And and so we're not going to hear in this life so many of the times where God used us, but to hear stories like that encourages us that he is still using us, even if we don't Mm -hmm. see the fruit ourselves. And I imagine in your life too, you had Christians in Southern California, maybe you interacted with even in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a Jesus freak. This was the early seventies. I was like a sophomore and whatever. I remember this Jesus freak stopping me um, on my way to the, to gym class. And he was, you know, he was looked like a hippie, Um, (laughs) but he was a couple years younger than me, maybe, maybe one year younger. And he, and he just asked me boldly, asked me the question about, and I and I and I wrote him off, uh, but I never forgot him. You know, someday I'd love to meet him. You know, in heaven. And th- I mean, there were others like that along the way. Um, yeah, for sure. And that I'm assuming for a person who's raised in Mormonism, 
you just don't even hear questions like that. Assuming he asked something like, Hey, you know, you're going to heaven or something like that. You just don't even, your brain doesn't even know what to do with that question. I assume. Yeah. I don't even remember what the question was, but he, but he raised the, he raised the gospel in some meaningful way. And, um, we talked for a second and class was starting, but so I pretty much like, ah, that guy doesn't know, know Jack, you know, so I'm off on my own. What's your favorite approach when witnessing to Mormons? Do you have like a, a go-to if there's a, that sidewalk encounter, like you mentioned before, do you got a, your favorite method? Well, I want to, I want to start by asking some questions. You don't always have a lot of time in the sidewalk, you know, to ask, to ask uh, questions. But um, I think this, you know, for, for those of us who want to do that, we tend to focus on um, issues that maybe the average Mormon person is not really interested in. So we want, so I love, we want to talk about the nature of God, for example. What, what the average Mormon person is interested in is the weight of perfection, the worthiness issue. So, um, so we'll just, I'll just ask, I'll start by asking some, somebody, Hey, uh, tell me a little bit about your story. You know, what's it, what's your more, your story. And then we'll talk about, then, then we'll, I can bring up if I'm, if we goes very far, then I can bring up sort of an impossible gospel type approach that says, you know, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing on this? Oh, wait, how how perfect have you been? You know, um, and just try to sow into that the idea that, hey, you know, Jesus has done it all. Um, he's done everything you need to be right with God. And he, and he also has this life-changing power that changes, you know, how you live. And so basically, I want to hear their story. And I want to challenge them a little bit with um, the, the the nature of the Mormon gospel that says you have to be worthy, mm. and say, you know, how how are you doing at that? Mm. And you know, that's a that's pretty that's pretty pretty intimate question. Yeah. And so so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get an honest answer like like you said earlier, but but I want to plant a seed that says, oh, hmm, mm. maybe it's not perfect like I'm pretending it is yeah force force the person to articulate it to mm-hmm. a non-mormon uh and not not like a, a mormon articulating it to a fellow mormon but someone who's genuinely asking who's genuinely curious who's not a part of your world I, having that that latter-day saint articulate how he's doing with the weight of perfection i think can yeah. really do something to his heart and one one thing i learned um from i don't know if you if you know aaron shaveloff yeah, he's oh, in yeah. Utah. Yeah. So one thing I learned from Aaron, who does this a lot, and he and he's uh, so winsome in how he handles this sidewalk conversations. Um, you know, he has a he has a a good way to get to the heart. He says um, he'll say to someone, "Have you ever had an evangelical Christian explain to you mm-hmm. their idea of what the gospel is?" Yeah. Okay. They'll say yes or they'll say no. If they say yes. Then, then his follow-up question is, well, uh, tell me how what you understood. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you heard yeah. that. And that's a great way to diagnose the the accuracy of their of their listening and then just what they filtered out, you know. And if they said um, no, then it's a sim- simple matter of, hey, uh, hey, that's interesting. Would you mind if I take a minute to do that? And it's a pretty natural way to do it because it's asking a question, asking about their experience and asking about their understanding and then following up with on that with, you know, some personal reflection and personal biblical um, truth. 
It's it's amazing you bring that up because just this past Wednesday night, two two nights ago, I printed off something I've given to our congregation before. Uh, Aaron's like kind of diagram that he made of conversation starters. Uh, he's got yeah. like one one is heart and truth questions, and the other one is just like getting the ball rolling kind of conversation. And the one I singled out is the one that you just described. Has have you ever had an evangelical Christian? share the gospel with you and then yes or no off you go. And just using that example with the the people here saying, we make this so complicated sometimes. <laughs> look, look how yeah. easy this is. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy. Cause I can always remember that. Yes. You know? So, so this book uh, responding to the Mormon missionary message, who's it for and how's it going to help them? Yeah, we really wrote it. Um, Corey, you know, Corey's idea that, uh, he thought, hey, there's a twofold thing that's going to happen here. So to answer your question, Jeremy, it's for uh, Christians who are missionally engaged. They have a, a mindset of sharing their faith, but um, who are going to encounter Mormon missionaries or have relationships with active LDS people. Yeah. So it's broader than just the missionaries. Now, the missionaries, they're out there looking for context. They're looking for opportunities. A lot of times they're going to knock on your door and you're going to go, look, oh, no, no, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to let you in. Um, but most active LDS people, many of them served a mission or they have, you know, they, they, they own some of those same things that the missionary lessons are talking about. So it's really like this is how to talk to the person who's pretty um, engaged in their Mormon faith, and they're willing to have a conversation. And so, so Corey's idea was, gosh, if we could, we could see Mormon, the Mormon missionary program is converting, you know, nominal Christians pretty right and left. Hmm. I mean, there's like somebody, I don't know this statistic. Somebody says that every week there's a there's the equivalent of a Baptist church that joins the Mormon church. I don't know what that means. I don't know how big that is, but. But, they're, but that's their target audience, is people who already have some, some biblical framework, because their framework is, um, is built on. It has to, you have to have an understanding of a, of a God, yeah. of Jesus, of the Bible. And so this is why Mormonism doesn't, the missionary program of Mormonism doesn't really pioneer in other cultural settings where Christianity has not already been. So it's kind of parasitic. Well, in, in a way, and would you say that's because the Book of Mormon is essentially an addendum, right? I mean, it markets itself as another testament. Yeah, to understand the Book of Mormon, you have to accept certain uh, perspective on on Christianity. You have to accept, oh, Jesus. You know, to say that the Mormon message to say that it's a restoration of Jesus' original church. Well, you have to accept that Jesus had an original church, or right. there was a Jesus, yeah. and and so it so it really builds on, and then reinterprets and redefines so much of it. But but it builds on this this. Uh, so my point is that the people who are converting to Mormonism are from an, a Christian best, nominal Christian in some sense or another, probably, but but have this language, this terminology, this sort of this sort of culture level um, acquaintance. With the with the biblical ideas at least, and so you know if we can say that's who they're targeting, why don't we try to why don't we try to set up a fence in a way mm. that we can equip some people to not be convinced because they they could read the book they go oh 
oh, well, I, my, I'm not going to be convinced by these missionaries. Number two is people who want to actually share their faith. So we're, we're thinking like, oh, Mormon missionaries are coming to faith. We have examples of that. You mentioned uh, the Wilders in Adams Road Ministry. There's other examples, you know, of Mormon missionaries who are coming to faith. Now they may it might not be right away, but our authors are a great example of that. And so, what if um, we were able to have genuine Christians share Jesus with these Mormon missionaries, and and they start to see we start to see Mormon missionaries coming to faith in Christ. That kind of stems the tide. That's like that's like gets it. That's like a chokehold that gets at the problem before it even begins. So if there's less missionaries going out and they're being less effective, then that changes the whole dynamic of of the Mormon missionary effort. So it's, that's what we're trying to accomplish in the book. Is basically we just want to equip people not to fall for Mormonism and other people to actually have something meaningful and um, gospel centered and thoughtful to say to Mormon missionaries. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I guess besides being born into it, the demographic that is most susceptible to becoming LDS are immature and ill-equipped Christians. That's interesting way to think about it. And so I guess this book could actually get a Christian excited to have a conversation with missionaries that I guess that would be the goal, huh? And I I imagine there are several, uh, especially outside of Utah who just do the same thing they do when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. Let's close the curtains, turn off the lights, pretend like we're not home, kind of kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but you're saying invite them in and chat, huh? Yeah. It, why not? Because you can have an if you're prepared, then you can plant a seed. You can. Uh, well, first of all, you're keeping them from talking to somebody who's not prepared. Mm, amen. And then secondly, you know, you could plant a seed. And again, our our authors demonstrate how somebody said something on their mission that just stayed with them. It floored them. It got them thinking. You know, they didn't they didn't accept faith in Jesus right away or reject Mormonism right, but it got them thinking, and it and it, and it stayed with them, and it gave credibility to the uh, Christian message and to and to you know Christians in general. So yeah, so I mean, here's the thing, Jeremy. So like, um. We had more missionaries come to our house um, early in the spring, and and I had had I had had an accident, I had some injuries, and so I wasn't really in a place where we were going to take advantage of speaking to them. And they came, my, so my wife was running interference, so she sent them away, and then they came back, and she sent them away again, and and they eventually came back, and she wasn't there, and so I said, well, got this book, I'm putting it out there on talking to more missionaries. I guess I better put up, you know. Um, I can't can't be a hypocrite. Uh-huh. So I said, okay, this is great. Let me let me talk to these guys. And I and I and I wanted to anyway. So, but here's the thing. So I went through in our conversations as we went through their lessons. I knew I knew where they were going because I'd been briefed by this. But I often went to those chapters written by those former Mormon missionaries to say, okay, what's the approach I'm going to take on on this particular issue. Or, or how do I answer this issue? Oh, boom, there it is. You know, so super helpful to me. Um, the you know the book to use it the way that I thought people would probably want to use it. I'm surprised that you still get missionaries at your house. Like you're not blackballed. <laughs> 
they they haven't figured out. We've lived in this house for nine years, and they they apparently haven't figured out. These two young missionaries, um, it didn't take them long. They asked me right off the bat, well, what do you do? Yeah, that's it. That's the the giveaway. Mm -hmm. And and it came out pretty fast that I was a former Mormon. Um, I, I didn't tell them everything. I didn't tell them, oh, I've got this book on sharing our faith with Mormon missionaries. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, yeah. But, yeah. I, I love finding missionaries and just talking to them. Cause I, what I tell people is like, their job is to have religious conversations. Yeah. I yep. mean, why would you not take advantage of that? You know, yep, that's absolutely. all, all they're focused on for two years here. But the last time in my neighborhood, there were a couple, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. I found them and started chatting with them and, uh, they said, "Oh, we've heard of you." And I thought, "Oh, okay. That's <laughs> now it's over." <laughs> That's funny. That's funny because you've been doing it. So here's the the thing: the I had four or five meetings with these two young men, and um, I found out they're also talking to other pastors. Like they're talking to a couple friends of mine. I found, oh, you're talking to Mark Gomez. Oh, mm-hmm. I know him. Oh, you're talking to Chris Duran. Yeah, I used to work with him, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting because that's probably who is available to want to talk to them. Uh, but they got transferred and, and they text text message. They say, Hey, we're transferring it. We won't be able to finish. And he said, the new missionaries coming into our, take our place. They don't really want to start for a few months. And so basically they like arms linked now. So yeah. maybe, maybe that's the response I'm getting that you got already. Uh huh. Yeah, that could be because yeah, they, it's an interesting thing when you sit down with these missionaries, because they're, they're young men, they're, they're green to the world in a lot of ways. And they've obviously been trained to not just say certain talking points, but have a certain way about them as they talk. What, what's up with that? I mean, it's almost like they're, they're trying to make it a, I don't know, like a holy reverent, something i mean they're they're just not acting like themselves they're they're all acting kind of the same with the tone that they use and the way they approach conversations i mean can you get into that part of it too not just the content but like how they're going about it yeah i think a lot of that i'm not sure how much of that is taught but i think it's certainly modeled um and it's modeled in the LDS church at as a whole it's modeled at general conference where the speakers in general conference take on a certain intonation very soft it's, like it's a, very it's it's conference speak yeah. you know it's yeah yeah um i, I would say a, grandfatherly but yeah with the apostles it's uh of the mormon church it's like great 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 grandfatherly great, great, great. yeah yeah <laughs> and it's like but it's not engaging to me it's not like oh that's an interesting way to talk it's there it's like a they're they're accepting the sort of mantle of spiritual authority and that's how they yes. think if you have spiritual authority that's how you talk yeah, you know, right. It, it's like they're not being real. Yeah, exactly. And so these young guys, you know, they can't have the same the same mantle, but they have a mantle. There's they they adopt the mantle of spiritual authority. There is a certain sense of, I would call it even a little bit of arrogance on their part. They think that they're there. They know the right answers. They're going to deliver them to you. You're benighted in some way or another, and um, and so, but but they do like. There is this spiritualizing sense where they they need feel like I need to spiritualize the whole conversation by talking about you know I don't know framing it in terms of the this this churchy sense of mm-hmm. there's a churchiness that enters my kitchen you know 
And so I tried to get it away from that a little bit, just ask these guys about their life and about, hey, what's up? And but they but they kept bringing it back. They mm-hmm. talk about a little bit what you know their story, but they kept bringing it back to that sense of um, it, it's it feels to them like it's spiritually real mm-hmm. somehow. It feels to me like it's spiritually fake, but mm-hmm. you know, it kind of like how they they always pray in King James English. I've noticed too. Yeah. It's almost That's like they learn. They've learned how to pray that that's their, that's the normal. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's reverent. They look at it as being a reverent way to uh, uh, express, you know, your thoughts to God. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned you going back and referencing the book that you were editor of uh, to glean ideas and everything in your conversations. I'm curious what parts of the book stood out to you in particular, what did you find particularly enjoyable or interesting? Well, every chapter is is unique, and so um, I found I found every chapter had its own interesting elements. Partly because it's story and it's telling you know story and so of, pe- of people's experiences in life. But honestly, I think we didn't plan it this way. We asked the guys, "Hey, there's five lessons in the Mormon Missionary Manual," and um, and we said, "Why don't you pick one? Mm-hmm. Just go ahead and pick one." So we organize them in the order in which they come. And so the but the last chapter by Michael Flournoy, I thought, man, that the Holy Spirit just made that the last chapter on purpose mm-hmm. because it just wrapped things up so powerfully and so well. And the way he finished, it's a chapter all about how to be obedient to, to Mormonism. And and he uh, he he closed it so well with by making it so Christ-centered. And, and and asking some great questions and uh, answering some Mormon questions that Mormons ask. So to me, that was a que- the, the chapter that probably I found to be the most appealing of them all. Now, some of them have, they all had appeal in their own way. But to me, that's the one I said, man, if you could only read one, that'd be a great place to start, mm-hmm. even though it's the last chapter. It's a great way to conclude. Yeah, Michael's a good guy um, and has a, has a way about him that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I actually uh, wasn't planning on showing this. It just hit me, and I keep it in my desk drawer next to me, so it worked out. I bought this at Confetti Antiques in uh, Spanish Fork down here. This is a uniform system for teaching investigators, and it's from <laughs> yep. August of '61. Yep. And uh, there's a female missionary had it, some lady named Ida, who was from South Carolina, huh. and uh, wrote in the front here. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? But one of the things that I thought was really interesting as you go through, I mean, it's several pages and it walks through teaching principles and what the right. first discussion should be like, what the second discussion should be like, et cetera. First discussion back then. Um, number one, there's a need for a modern day prophet. It goes right into apostasy, that your church is wrong, basically, if they're talking to a Christian. Yep. Uh, and then gets into let's set up a date for your baptism, like right off the bat. Yeah. Oh, so much more direct than today. Yeah. Where it seems yeah. like today they come along as like habitat for humanity people who are like universalists almost who are like, well, you're, you're a Christian, that's so great. Pat you on yeah. the back. Can we mow yeah. your lawn? And it drives me nuts. Now here's an interesting thing, Jeremy. Is that so? So the current version of it's called preach my gospel yeah now that those ones had i think six missionary lessons now preach my gospel went to five that was 2004 
So it's about 20 years old. <clears throat> well, this summer, just after we sent our chapters to the publisher, the LDS church has changed Preach My Gospel again. Well, they changed it online. It's still called Preach My Gospel, and it still follows the same order of topics. Um, but what's interesting, they're going to put it out probably in print and start using it to train missionaries. Um, who knows when after the first of the year, maybe. So we're going like, wait, is our book even still relevant? Right, yeah. But we we, we went through and I did a thorough study of Preach My Gospel version two. That I'm one sorry. just came out. Yeah. No, it was, in, it was interesting. So we said, okay, all the stuff is the same. All of the principles. So like back in the one you've had from the 60s, they opened with the apostasy. The, but they also, in the current one that we're responding to, they open with the restoration, which implies the apostasy. Mm -hmm. They framed it in a more positive way. Correct. Yeah. But it talks about the, necess the necessity of prophets and um, the claim of apostasy and so forth. Jesus' true church died and was restored to Joseph Smith. All that's the same. <clears throat> and the new version is the same. But so we said, okay, well, our, you know, our, our approach still works. They, they changed, uh, they made it from five lessons into four by combining the last two. Hmm. So they combined um, number four and five into what's now number four. But it's all the same material. So our stuff, our chapters still apply. But here's so what's so interesting. That compared to the new version, the 2004 version seems really direct. Huh. And so just it's very much in keeping with what you just said. And it's like a, it's probably like a continuation of the same principle that in the 2004 version, there's a lot more about um, duty and obligation. And here's what you have to do to um, get God's blessings. But in the new version, it's so much more about, oh, God just has these promises for you. And it's, it's very much indirect and it's very much a, I mean, it it really does speak to the culture, the younger culture, and it speaks to the missionaries themselves who are 18, 19, 20 years old. This is the culture that they grew up in mm. that's a lot more, I guess, pluralistic and a lot less directive. Now, at the end of the day, they still get to the directives, but they don't say them the same way. They're said more as invitation rather than as um, expectation. Right. Or There's like a different uh... tone. It's not propositional. Like, if you don't do this, then you'll face these consequences. I mean, there's right. none of that language in yep. dealing with missionaries anymore. I yep. I remember, I think it was last year, uh, there was a missionary, uh, a pair of missionaries in my living room, and asking them the question of, you know, like, what's the most important thing that you could urge me to do? You know, say we were um, on an airplane and it was going down and you've got yep. a yep. minute. 30 seconds to a minute to urge me to think some way, believe some way. And it was nothing. I mean, he, they couldn't come up with yeah. anything. It was just, no, the, at that point, no, there's nothing, but you know, on the other side, you know, you'll learn and grow and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it almost makes me wonder if the future of Mormonism is just going to be a universalist liberal charity organization. Yeah. I wonder about that too. I mean, you have these old guys who rule, who govern the Mormon church that are still anchored in, you know, their feet are still anchored in the fifties mm -hmm. and so forth. So 
I think I think Mormonism will take a long time to change because it's going to take a long time for the the second and third generation to become old enough or you know have enough seniority to be the leaders. But looking at the way this uh, this new missionary manual is framed, um, again they haven't changed the core ideas, but they've certainly changed the way they present them and and the kind of appeal that they're making. But you know, somebody so somebody's been doing their homework though. I I think it it's either a reflection of the changing culture or it's a reflection of their response to the changing culture. Mm-hmm. Could be both. So for example, in the in the mission missionary manual, they want to make sure that you are prepared to keep the covenants that you're going to make at your baptism. And in the past, you know, some of our authors have suggested that that's a way of screening out people who we don't really want to become members. Mm. You know, if they mm. can't really live the commandments, then why, you know, why bother? Um, but we feel like feel like now maybe that that has ch- changed somewhat. But anyway, they talk about um, it. They say if you find um, a couple uh, that's living together and they're not married and they're living in a mm. intimate relationship and so forth, they're shacked up. Basically, they said they need to. And the previous version said they need to, you know, get stop that relate. They need to get married, or they need to to move apart from each other, whatever, before you can baptize them. Now the new version also says that, but what it adds is, if you find a homosexual couple that's living together, that doesn't say they need to get married, but it says they need to break off that relationship or to change their the nature of the relationship before they can become baptized. So it's interesting that the underlying principle is still there. The underlying boundary is still there, but they've broadened the scope of it to um, include more like the, the audience that these young missionaries are more likely to encounter and, and maybe their own um, attitudes and their own culture that they've been raised in. That's just one example of that. So, so what do you think is going to happen on the homosexual issue? In the Mormon Church, well, I don't know. I, this is a great debate because Mormon Church. There's two. There's one side of it is this: the LDS Church has always shown that they will change in order to survive and thrive. So, with the blacks and the priesthood issue, etc., uh, with polygamy, um, ending ending of polygamy, etc., they'll change in order to survive. But here's the other side of the issue: is that this question is so central to the fundamental Mormon worldview, which is all based around eternal procreation. You, yeah, right. I mean, you've so, got to be so, able to populate the other planets. Right. And so that is so much at the heart um, of the whole Mormon worldview, the whole Mormon story, you know, their their meta narrative is so rooted in that idea that on one hand, the survive the change to survive suggests yeah it could maybe it won't be that long, but on the other hand this is so rooted in their meta narrative that maybe oh maybe this is the one that doesn't come along very quickly or maybe it hmm. it's resisted for a longer period of time so that that's a that's a strange a strange thing yeah so I just a... yeah the, I just they... remember joking about when um, when um, polygamy became um, uh, when gay marriage became um, legal in Utah, I thought, well, what's next? Maybe 
maybe gay plural marriage. Why not? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, they, they can basically ha- craft some sort of a plan for what homosexuals can do for eternity. Um, and once they get that kind of in place, they could roll out the possibility of LDS gay marriage. But it seems for some Latter-day Saints, it seems really far-fetched. I mean, I think probably the over 40 crowd. I think for yeah. the under 40 crowd, they're ready. They're ready. It's not far-fetched at all. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the reality of the world they live in, and it's the norms and expectations. So I I always I always thought, you know, living in Utah, ministering in Utah for all these years, I thought, well, you know, um postmodernism hasn't really reached Utah. It's reached it more slowly than in than elsewhere in the country, but it's here in Utah full blast now. Mm. The the postmodern ideals about, you know, your truth is good for you and um the sense of the sense of uh pluralism and um permissivism and so forth. It's it's here. And so that's going to change the LDS church going forward. Nobody's quite sure how quickly or in what specific ways. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize outside of Utah how liberal Salt Lake is, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the I'm, I'm trying to verify real quick. I think the city council of Salt Lake is it's like the most diverse in the country or something as far as that goes. Uh, let's see, January of last year, the histor- historic Salt Lake council majority lgbtq and people yeah. of color i mean yeah. this isn't yes. brigham's utah yeah. anymore no not even not not at all salt lake city i mean my daughter lived in downtown salt lake city for a while for quite a while and salt lake city really is one of the most welcoming havens of the lgbt lifestyle it, and so it's well known for that and um it so what what you know, I've discovered in like in Salt Lake City is in Utah County. I'm not in Utah County so much, but in Utah, the heart of it is like there's just such a polarization between the active LDS and the people who've totally rejected yes. the LDS framework. And that that can that kind of makes it tough for kids growing up as Christian. Who do I relate to? You know, totally. Um, yeah, it shows the need uh, if you're Christian for a good church in Utah. Amen. So Amen for sure. tell me a little bit about your church. How long has it been around? And um, what's the what's the demographic like? You got a lot of former Latter-day Saints there? Yeah. So Alpine Church is a multi-site church. Um, it, we have six different locations, mostly in uh, Davis, Weber County, Box Elder County, and, and Logan. Um, it's been around a little over 20 years um, I've, I've only been on the staff for about 11 years. So when I came to Utah, I planted a church. It was a, a, a church. It, it was part of the Evangelical Free Church of America mm-hmm. denomination. And um, after 28 years there, I just, God was just telling me it's time to step down, time to make, make a change, time to let the church develop some leadership mm-hmm. that would take it beyond my capacity and so forth. And so we went, we went through an uh, evaluation process about what happens in the future. Um, and we we talked to the denomination and they took us through some really helpful stuff. And I knew these guys at Alpine Church because when they come to Utah, I'd kind of taken them under my wing a little bit and hmm. it's a relationship and there was a lot of connection, a lot of uh, philo- philosophical oneness. So I said, hey guys, what would it look like 
for us to become, you know, enfolded into Alpine Church. They had two campuses at that time. And so it all worked, you know, it all worked out of the long process. We joined Alpine Church or were adopted into Alpine Church. And so my role changed. And then the, that that church building became a campus of the church. But so Alpine's about 20 years. And um, we do have a lot of foreign Mormons. In fact, we would say our target audience is disaffected Mormons. Yeah. So we're trying, we're trying Jack to. Mormons. Yeah. The ones who like, they're not loyal. They're not TBM. You know, they're likely to. Or, or they're more likely to walk through the doors of a church. They're more likely to hear, you know, the message that we have. And, and so we take that, um, that, that audience into account with everything we do, how we do Sunday morning service. We're, we're open to that guest. Hmm. We're thinking about how, how that guest is going to experience how we talk about the Bible, how we preach the Bible, how we do the things that we do on Sunday. Um, so so we we do have we do have a pretty good number of former Mormons um, in the life of the of the church. Depending on one, each campus is different. Some of them are in like in Brigham City. Um, there's probably a larger proportion of of Mormons in that in that congregation. And Logan has had a lot of connection with former Mormons as well, more so than say Layton um, or Riverdale. Yeah. So you want to explain the. Are the cultural element there that you were just describing uh, many people listening don't live in Utah, but will encounter Mormons like this. You said, you mentioned TBM. I mentioned Jack Mormon. You just kind of want to explain what that's all about. Yeah. So a TBM is shorthand for true blue or true believing Mormon. They're the loyal, they own it. It's their life. It's their identity. A Jack Mormon, that phrase goes back, I think to Brigham Young that's who, how I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Who, 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 I think it might've originally been a jackass Mormon. That's how I've heard it. <laughs> um, and it's been short. So this is the Mormon who his, he has a Mormon sense of cultural identity. Um, he would call himself a Mormon, um, but he's not active. He doesn't have any callings in the church. He probably doesn't even go to church. Um, he lives in the ward, but he, but he uh, doesn't, you know, really live it out. But if push comes to shove, he would identify, oh, I'm a Mormon. Mm. So that that's the that's the Jack Mormon. And more and more you have, you know, as you know, you have people who are filling every gap in between yeah. those two, those two poles. Um, and what's interesting too is that someone who is as Jack Mormon as you can be can still like defend it to the death. Oh, totally. Uh, kind of like how in New England, uh everyone's Roman Catholic, even though no one's Roman Catholic, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and they'll, they'll defend the Pope or whatever, you know, if they need to push comes to shove, they're Catholic and that's what they're always going to be. It's kind of the same thing with Mormons. And, um, so whether your neighbor is a true believing Mormon or a Jack Mormon, they can be equally difficult to reach, which almost seems nonsensical, but the cultural aspect is so right. strong. That's right. It's a that's a great point because it is, it really does boil down to being a cultural identity. Yeah, this is who I am. You think about, um, say, Jewish people in America. You know, there's all kinds of belief levels of belief system and different. There's conservative and there's orthodox and there's reformed and uh, liberal Jewish people, but but it's still a sense of I am a Jew. This is who I, who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still a sense of this rootedness in this. Somehow there's this history. Somehow there's this culture. And I may not observe the high holy days. 
or I may that that might be all I do as a, mm. as a Jew, you know, or I might go to synagogue and I might not cut the hair on the side of my, my head, but so the whole spectrum. And so that's a similar kind of approach to the, the Catholicism, Judaism, it's a religious culture. Mormonism is a religious culture. And so yeah. that take that plays into everything, you know, taking that into account, we want to think about, um, how that culture defines how we share with and that's that's the chapter i wrote in the book is about mormon culture and how there are certain aspects of culture that make communication maybe more challenging yeah. than anybody else you're talking to one of those big aspects of the culture is, the mormon culture is the martyrdom complex that they have you want to speak to that and how that makes conversation difficult and what some possible solutions are there yeah so the idea is so Mormonism has this history of, of persecution and it's created martyrs. It's created people who are killed because of their Mormon faith or who were harassed or, or hassled and or driven out of from place to place. And so they've developed this as a, as a, a theme. Now it was real, but there was also, you know, elements of it that there was LDSP uh, Mormon people who were pushing back, who were, who were dominating the neighborhood they moved into, who, who, you know, it was a little tit for tat, but, but it was real. And it yeah. was, it was something that nobody should have to face. Um, but the LDS church has taken that history of persecution and they've honed it, you know, they've, they've magnified it so that it becomes a sense part of a sense of the identity. And so, so they'll think, Oh, you're persecuting. If you, if you speak negatively, or you dis even disagree, if you disagree with any kind of passion or fervor or whatever, then people can take that as like, oh, you're persecuting me. And so that the doors, the doors shut. Up comes the the screen, you know, and you have loose, loose conversation because they'll think, oh, well, the early church was persecuted. Jesus' original church was persecuted. I'm being persecuted. I must be like them. There's a connection and identity with with that. That, that so persecution or their sense of persecution actually fulfills that sense of, oh, we're the one true church mm -hmm. and we're the chosen people. And so how do I do it? I just want to make sure that um, I ask it, I, I, I say things, I'll ask a lot of questions again to say, hey, well, tell me what you think about this topic or this issue. I'm curious what you think about this, this issue. And can I share with you um, how I perceive that issue? And also, I'm just how you go about a conversation. I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to pile on, um, go for the win. You know, kind of like, uh, kind of like. I mean, I'll do that in a in a conversation about sports. Who's the <laughs> Who's the greatest NBA player ever? Whatever. But um, I'm, but I have to attempt. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll bring it back. I'll lower it down in the faith conversation with Latter-day Saint, because I know that there's the there's that complex that they feel persecuted. And there's also a thing in the Book of Mormon that says contention is of the devil. And so if it feels contentious to them, then they'll feel like, oh, see, the devil's just winning here. And so I'm going to write you off. That is such a, a critical element to bring up, because I'm sure that's an aspect of their training, too. When you feel contention, back off, create space. That might be the end of it. And that's so hard for us to navigate because it's like, well, we're disagreeing about the most important questions of life. So how, how do you avoid contention with that? Uh, but we can 
obviously do our best to make sure <laughs> we are removing all unnecessary obstacles because the gospel itself is a stumbling block by itself. I know inherently. So why I shouldn't be adding stumbling blocks of my own making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so, so difficult. Um, I assume you're not a LeBron James fan. You said, who's the greatest NBA player of all time? <laughs> I would not answer it by, by saying LeBron James. Hard yeah. to tell. He's he's creating a pretty good legacy for himself. But <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I, I grew up in I grew up as a Laker fan, and so I would probably lean toward Kareem. Oh well, is whatever he, for what it's worth. Uh, he was the points leader for a time, or is he still? He still is. Yeah. Okay. All right. For the moment, oh, you know, LeBron oh, will play till he's maybe 15. he's not. Maybe LeBron Pat. I can't remember who, yeah. whether whether he's been passed or not. Lou Alcindor, right? Yep. yep. Uh huh. Well, good. Yeah. Anything else you want to share about um, the book about what what you got going on with your ministry up there in Ogden? Yeah. No. Let, yeah. Let me add, let me throw this in just so your your here's might be interested. In. So one of the things that we've done is because of my experience leaving Mormonism and transitioning into biblical faith is that I've created a, a nonprofit. It's along, alongside the church. It has more regional influence than uh, or scope to the church. It's called Utah Advanced Ministries. And one of the things that we've, you know, I've tried to help church planners coming into town to think about the cultural issues and to understand, you know, how, how you go about doing church in ways that are meaningful and sensitive. Uh, but one in the last few years, so many people are leaving Mormonism. Hmm. So many people are leaving, and the majority of them opt for atheism or agnosticism at best. And so we started a project about five or six years ago. We call it Faith After Mormonism. See, how can we provide resources to keep people from throwing the baby out with the bathwater? How do we provide resources to steer people if they want Jesus, but they don't want Jesus in the context of Joseph Smith? They still want to have a faith life. They still want to pursue that or figure that out. And as a person leaves Mormonism and comes into a biblical Christian faith, there's so many things that are different. There's so many, uh, even church is so different. So how do we help people think about church? How do we help people think about, um, there's emotional, there's loss. There's a sense of loyalty. There's a sense of, I've lost, who do I trust? Um, there's a there's a sense of like um, you know this a grieving process even because uh, I've lost my sense of who I am and how do I know now who I am I've lost my family maybe like we were talking about before and so and then and then there's those relational issues like how do I deal with my family who's against me or whatever um, and then there's there's worldviews there's biblically how do I study the Bible how do I get to know Jesus. So before we had prayer as a Mormon, we had prayer and I had fasting and I had quote spiritual practices. Well, how does, how do I have spiritual practices now that, that are different, but they might look the same, um, but they have a different motive, a different sense. So, and then um, how do I pick a church? Cause I'm, I'm totally, I don't trust church at all. Yes. You know, trust and is such a big thing, isn't it? It's I mean, such a big thing. They, they were what they come to the conclusion of is I was lied to my whole life. How could I ever trust any group of people again that claims to tell me anything about God? Yep. So what we're trying to do is, is, is encourage people, show them how to transfer their trust from an ecclesiastical institution to ultimately trusting God. And when you ultimately trust in God, then in a secondary way, you can trust the things that God ordains. Yes. You know, so, 
So that's what we have Faith After Mormonism Conference every year, every fall. It's coming up uh, in 2023 on September 22nd, 23rd, a Friday night, Saturday. We have some speakers come in. We do some workshops that are meaningful to people. And we just connect people. Say, maybe there's somebody here today that you're going to meet that is some place in the journey that you are. Maybe they're a couple steps ahead of you in the journal and and in the journey. And so another thing we do with respect to the Faith After Mormonism Project is we provide um, mentors. We have a team of mentors and somebody somebody has to go online and find us and they request a mentor. We can hook them up with a, a man or a woman, mostly who are former Mormons, who can help them with their with their faith transition. Yeah, that actually brings to mind something from what you said earlier that I didn't follow up on. Um, You're talking about how your approach in evangelism to Latter-day Saints is to get to basically the the soteriological issues rather than the theology proper, getting to the salvation issues of the weight of your own works Mm -hmm. and maintaining perfection as opposed to getting into Trinity and uh, nature of, of God's being, which I totally understand why. Um, but it, it does kind of create this, uh, this awkward deal. I guess part of it is because Mormonism is so vast. Like the teachings of Mormonism are just miles, miles long of just all the things they've learned that are wrong Yeah, where you end up having someone who makes a profession of faith. And then months later says something like, wait, there isn't a heavenly mother. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. <laughs> and you're like, well, how do you not know that? Right. And, yeah. and sometimes it's like, well, were you really saved? I know you made a profession of faith, but, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, I guess internally analyze that and counsel people who get into that kind of situation? Right. So I, I just understand that there's a lot of deconstruction to do. There's a lot of baggage they bring to it. And I'm trying to perceive what's a gospel issue and what's a what's a sanctification yeah. issue? I guess you could say, right? So the existence, if they if they believe that they're they're oh there's not an eternal mother, is that really a gospel issue? It it might have implications for sure about the nature of God, but does it really affect the sense of whether a person has trusted in Jesus alone? You know, they recognize they're a sinner and they've trusted in Jesus alone yeah. to be right with God, not Jesus plus. You know, so so I'm going to try to. Um, take a lot of those things as pastoral issues and as issues of training. So it's the same thing because we're used to ministering in a in an American culture, which is has this huge um, Christian background um, cultural like like legacy, whether people believe it or not, they understand. So it's it's a lot like if I was ministering in a Muslim culture, and people are coming to faith out of a Muslim or out of a Hindu or whatever, then then I'm going to try to discern what's the bare what's the what's the minimum that needs to that they need to understand yeah. to actually have a legitimate faith response to Jesus. And then there's going to be a lot of other stuff sure. that'll have to be worked out in light of the gospel. And the way that they respond to correction down the road when stuff like that comes up, says a lot yeah. too. Like if someone yeah. says, Oh, there's no heavenly mother. I'm out. Yeah. Well, that says a lot, right? It uh, says a lot in terms of yeah. whether like, like what was the original attitude of your heart? Yes. Did you submit to the work of Jesus and the, right. and the, and the Lordship of Jesus in your life originally? Cause, yeah. Cause there is so much, Oh man, like you were just saying, I mean, there's so many things that 
you, you can't address it all in even a series of sessions. There's stuff that's yeah. going to come up years later yeah. that they'll click. Oh, wait. So that was wrong in Mormonism too. And, but as long as a person is committed to faithfully believing what God has given us in the Bible right. Right. and that person will be okay. Uh, it just yeah. takes time, right? Yeah. It'll take some time. They'll have to sort out some things, but they're not going to be a, opposed to a, adopting right. and sorting out those things, but they'll, they'll be stumbling along the way. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Ross, thanks for thanks yeah. for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to to share with you and to hear kind of what's on your heart and learn together about some things. And um, it's been a, a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. The book is Responding to the Mormon Missionary Message, a unique book that belongs on your bookshelf. If you're interacting with Mormons, if you plan to learn more about Mormonism, this is a very unique book that'll help you in that effort. So highly recommend. Very good.